This morning for our reading of Scripture, we turn to the prophecy of Daniel, and we're going to read a portion of Daniel chapter 9, the first 23 verses, Daniel 9, the portion that we're reading consists of a prayer that Daniel makes after he is conscious and aware that according to prophecy God has determined Israel will be in Babylon for 70 years and those 70 years are near or complete even though he knows that he yet prays and you will notice also about his prayer his prayer is not about himself it's about the people about their sins he includes himself in that so like many prayers recorded in scripture they're very instructive for us very helpful to read the prayers of the saints that are recorded in scripture which is what we do now Daniel chapter 9 <clears throat> In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish seventy years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments we have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments neither have we hearkened unto thy servants the prophets which spake in thy name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces as at this day. To the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and unto all Israel that are near and that are far off, through all the countries whither thou hast driven them because of their trespass, that they have trespassed against thee, O Lord. To us belongeth confusion of face, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against thee. To the Lord our God belong mercies and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. Neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws which he set before us by his servants the prophets. Yea, all Israel have transgressed thy law even by departing that they might not obey thy voice 
Therefore the curse is poured upon us, and the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we have sinned against him. And he hath confirmed his words which he spake against us, and against our judges that judged us, by bringing upon us a great evil. For under the whole heaven hath not been done, as hath been done upon Jerusalem, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this evil is come upon us. Yet made we not our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand thy truth. Therefore hath the Lord watched upon the evil and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works which he doeth, for we obeyed not his voice. And now, O Lord our God, that hast brought thy people forth out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and hast gotten thee renown as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from thy city, Jerusalem, thy holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people are become a reproach to all that are about us. Now therefore, O our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications, and cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. O my God, incline thine ear and hear, open thine eyes, and behold our desolations, and the city which is called by thy name. For we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousnesses, but for thy great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for thine own sake, O my God. For thy city and thy people are called by thy name. And whilst I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yea, whilst I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee. For thou art greatly beloved, therefore understand the matter and consider the vision. And we read that far in God's holy and inspired word. <clears throat> This morning, we consider the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 45.
Why is prayer necessary for Christians? Because it is the chief part of thankfulness which God requires of us. And also because God will give His grace and Holy Spirit to those only who with sincere desires continually ask them of Him and are thankful for them. What are the requisites of that prayer which is acceptable to God and which He will hear? First, that we from the heart pray to the one true God only who hath manifested Himself in His Word for all things He hath commanded us to ask of Him. Secondly, that we rightly and thoroughly know our need and misery so that we may deeply humble ourselves in the presence of His divine majesty. Thirdly, that we be fully persuaded that He, notwithstanding that we are unworthy of it, will for the sake of Christ our Lord certainly hear our prayer as He has promised us in His Word. What hath God commanded us to ask of Him? All things necessary for soul and body, which Christ our Lord has comprised in that prayer He Himself has taught us. And what are the words of that prayer? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, with this Lord's Day of the Heidelberg Catechism, we now turn to the second of the two great activities that comprise the life of a Christian. That all by itself is significant. That the Heidelberg Catechism, when describing a Christian, when describing who and what he is, does not simply and only describe the Christian as a man of faith. Certainly, that was the teaching already in the beginning of the Catechism, Lord's Day 7, when we were taught that we receive all of salvation, we receive all of Jesus Christ by faith and by faith alone. It is through faith that we are justified, and it is through faith that we are also sanctified. But the Scriptures and the Catechism describe the life of that faith. They do not simply set forth what faith believes and what faith is confident in, set forth faith as something that believes all of the Word of God and is a certain assurance in God, but how do we live by faith? What is the walk of life look like? And that is described in the Catechism in the third section, and it is all summarized as two activities. First, walking, behaving, talking 
according to the will of God as set forth in the Ten Commandments. That's what we discussed even last Sunday under the summary of the law when we considered that the summary of the law in the Heidelberg Catechism presents what an ordinary, normal Christian looks like. What is he and how does he behave? And we learned that he has a small beginning of the new obedience. That is, he begins to live according to all the commandments of God and sincerely delights and desires to do that. Implied also is that he flees from all that is a contrary to God's law. Then there is the life of prayer. That life of prayer, which really flows out of even the consideration of the law of God. This is second in the catechism because it flows out of what we learn from the law of God and from living according to the law of God and even from our sin, which is pointed out in the law of God. We learned in the last Lord's Day that one reason that we preach the whole Word of God, including His law, is so that we may become the more earnest in seeking the remission of sins and righteousness in Christ. Likewise, that we constantly endeavor and pray to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit. It's talking there about prayer. So now it describes that second part, prayer. But it is remarkable that prayer is set forth as the most important and significant part of the Christian life. That's surprising. Perhaps you look at everything laid out here, especially the Ten Commandments, which cover all of our behavior inward and outward here and there and everywhere with regard to God and with regard to our neighbor. And we say, well, it covers all of my life. There's no part of my life that is not governed by the law of God. Surely that's the chief part of the Christian life. And the Catechism says, no, it's not. The chief part of thankfulness, in other words, the most important and significant part of the life of the Christian, a life of thankfulness, is prayer. Not prayer exclusively, because it is through what we just learned that we recognize the necessity of prayer, but nevertheless, it is the chief part of the Christian life. To put it another way, anyone that claims to be a Christian and does not pray, or prays infrequently, is a hypocrite, or has not learned their great need from the law of God, is living aloof from that law of God, perhaps considers that that law of God has no more authority over their life, or does not care. When the Catechism sets this forth as the chief part of thankfulness, it is saying that this is the one great aspect, the standard, the identifying characteristic of a Christian, he prays, she prays. 
And if you read the scriptures, that is borne out. Time and time again, especially in the New Testament, the child of God is urged to be watchful and in prayer. If you read the Canons Head 5, where it talks about the perseverance and preservation of the saints and talks about the fall of the child of God into great and terrible sins, the Canons there blame that on a lack of prayer. The Catechism here has that view of prayer. Notice also that the Catechism teaches that this is exclusive to the Christian. There are many who claim to pray. There are many who take the posture of prayer that maybe utter many words of prayer, but they are in fact not praying. Their prayers are not heard. Their prayers are not answered. They hit the ceiling and they bounce back. They remain in the heart. Why is that? Because they're not Christians. Because they lack faith or have no faith. That's brought out when the Catechism not only talks about prayer being necessary for Christians, but talks about the requisites of prayer. Well, notice also that prayer is the chief part of thankfulness because it is fellowship with God. The Christian life is characterized as fellowship with God, covenant fellowship. That's what the covenant is, a relationship of fellowship with God. And the primary way we actually do that is prayer. It's how we talk with God. It's how He talks with us. That's how we live close to Him. So these things we will consider this morning, the, the prayer of Christians, and we'll notice uh, the necessity of that, how necessary it is, the requirements or requisites of prayer, and then finally the confidence of prayer. We start out by looking at that first question and answer which sets forth as clear as it can be set forth that prayer is absolutely necessary for a Christian. To put it another way, it is indispensable for a Christian. You simply do not have a Christian that does not pray. And you cannot live the life of a Christian without prayer. You may even put it this way as I did in the introduction, which is to be a Christian is to be in prayer. Christians pray. It's what they do. That's the approach of the catechism here when it asks the question that it does, why is prayer necessary for a Christian? And notice once again, the catechism doesn't ask if it's necessary. It basically asks the same question that it asked with regard to the other great aspect of the Christian life, doing good works that is, living according to the law of God. There we also noticed that the Catechism doesn't ask if good works are necessary. Perhaps it could. Because there are many, even Christians, even sadly those who claim to be Reformed Christians, who say that that's not the case. To say that good works are necessary is to make them a prerequisite or a condition to our salvation. 
which if one is to be honest and one is to be logically consistent, that's the attitude they must also take with regard to prayer. That to say prayer is necessary is to make it a prerequisite or a condition. That's not true. And so much is that not true that the catechism really doesn't even ask those questions, but it asks why. Well, why is it necessary? Because that's the important question. Notice that part of the answer is that it's simply an essential activity of the Christian life. There's an analogy that can be drawn that's very helpful to understand the connection. Do you eat and drink to make yourself alive? The answer is no, of course not. Dead people don't eat and drink and don't need to eat and drink. It's even silly to walk up to a dead body and say, hey, you need to eat and drink. That dead person, that dead body doesn't hear you. It doesn't need food. It doesn't need drink. So to even talk about the necessity of something implies, at least in the case of prayer, that there is a person who needs it because they're alive. That's the idea here. That prayer is necessary for a Christian exactly because he's a Christian and not an unbeliever. An unbeliever can't pray. An unbeliever doesn't pray. An unbeliever doesn't need prayer because he's dead. He must first be made alive. He must first become a Christian. But now that he is a Christian, he must pray. Just like once you're born and you're alive, you need food. Your very life demands it. The very life you have been given requires it. Notice that's the approach here. To ask if prayer is necessary is as foolish and as silly as asking does your heart need to beat? And do your lungs need to fill with air? And the answer is, of course, if you're alive, it's absolutely necessary. Now the question is asked, why? Because this aspect of our life, and even this aspect which is indeed necessary for the support of our life, is asked because it is not automatic and unconscious. God in His wisdom, God in His making of us, made us creatures who live consciously and willingly. Our life, even our spiritual life, is not simply a life whereby our heart beats unconsciously and our lungs take in air without us thinking about it, but is a life where we sit down at the table and we eat and we drink. We take our hands and our fork and we put food into our mouth and we chew and we digest. And Christ teaches us that even in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And a prayer is one of those means that God uses to support our life. And if someone comes along and denies that, denies 
for example, that you do not need to pray in order to receive the grace of God and His Holy Spirit to deny the very words of the Catechism, that's not only foolish because it denies the confessions, but it would deny that prayer is even necessary for the support of our earthly life. Now certainly, God using such means still is grace. The fact that we use means and God gives us means does not deny that. And God shows that by indeed showing that He is capable of supporting our earthly life without us praying for it. Without praying for, say, daily bread. And so God also supports our spiritual life often when we do not pray for it. He is a gracious and merciful God, but that's not the norm. That's not the way God appointed it to be. In other words, when considering the necessity of prayer, the necessity is in the first place that we are Christians, born again, regenerated in Jesus Christ, and He has given us another life, a spiritual life. And prayer is the necessary means for the support of that life, even as it is the means by which we receive the support of our earthly life. There's not one of us that would be so foolish to come to a Christian who is in need of food and drink and tell them, don't bother praying. It's not necessary to pray. In fact, it may be one reason that they're in their poverty. Because they've neglected prayer. They've neglected something as simple as being thankful for their everyday bread and praying to God for it. Now, prayer is necessary for Christians in the second place because God requires it. Oh yes, it's a requirement. Make no mistake about that. Notice, why is prayer necessary for Christians? And the answer isn't simply, well, because you're alive and you're a Christian and you need it. God has given it as a means by which to receive what you need. But it's something which God requires. It is the chief part of thankfulness which God requires of us. Do not overlook that. This all by itself would be sufficient to establish the point. Never mind why God requires it. Simply consider that He requires it. And notice that's true for all the saints, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. If you look carefully throughout the Old Testament, time and time again, the people of God not only pray, but they are called to prayer. In Psalm 50, we read this, Offer unto God thanksgiving, and pay thy vows unto the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. It is interesting, more than interesting, it is highly significant. And maybe this is a good exercise for a Sunday afternoon. Go through the Psalms and count the number of times that the psalmist either requests God to hear his prayer. So he's making a prayer, and he's asking God to hear his prayer. Or 
he notes that God is the God who has heard his prayer, who always hears his prayer. And some of the Psalms simply extol God, their praises to God, for the fact that he is the God who hears the prayer of his people. I started to count one time, and I was well over a hundred very quickly. It is remarkable how many of the Psalms are not simply prayers. Many of them are prayers, which is significant all by itself. But even those that aren't, those that are simply Psalms of praise and of worship, remark about how God is the God who hears our prayers or extols God as the God who hears prayers, not simply because they required, but because He is who He is, the God of mercy and grace. But that indicates something. God does require it. And the child of God sings about that. He notes that. And how many times does the psalmist, such as in Psalm 50 that I read, actually give that as an exhortation? Pray. Pray. Count some time. How many times in Scripture we're called simply to pray? Oh, that doesn't go away in the New Testament. doesn't go away now that Jesus Christ has come and Jesus Himself makes that plain. In fact, it's remarkable that when the Scriptures characterize Jesus Christ, they characterize Him not only as a man of humility and a man who was lowly and despised, but a man of prayer. We have that in the book of Hebrews chapter 5, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. That's Jesus Christ. Now, if any of one of us doubt that prayer is necessary, that prayer is an optional part of our life, or wonder why God requires it, maybe questions whether it's necessary to get through our life, perhaps we need it only when we're really in need, which I hope you all recognize is exactly what we do, then contemplate that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who himself is God, in his human flesh, a flesh, by the way, which was perfect, never sinned, never thought an evil thought, never trespassed against his God, loved his God with all his heart and mind and soul and strength, prayed, and prayed again and again and again, sometimes with his disciples, often alone. Look at him the night before he's betrayed. Read the scene in the upper room beginning in John chapter 12, and note that almost the rest of the book is about that incident. In the upper room, and there's an entire chapter on his prayer. Then they leave the upper room, they go to Gethsemane, and what do we see him doing there? Praying. 
praying with great drops of blood dripping on the ground. If you see him on the cross, you see him there quoting the Psalms. He's praying the Psalms. If prayer was necessary for Jesus Christ, and does anyone here doubt that? Is there anyone that would say, to say that prayer was necessary for Jesus Christ makes prayer a condition? What nonsense. He prayed and it was necessary, even for him who was Almighty God. That's humbling. He taught us to pray. What are we considering this morning? The Lord's Prayer. Who taught us the Lord's Prayer? The Lord Himself. And why did He do that? If prayer isn't required and prayer is not necessary. Prayer is necessary, beloved people of God, in the first place because of God Himself. Prayer is necessary simply because of who we are in relationship to God. Prayer is necessary to God because God is the Almighty. From Him, from Him alone, all blessings flow. All your food and drink, it comes not from the store. It comes not from the retailer or the merchant. It comes not on trucks. It comes from God. God is the one who dispenses it. And God is the one who dispenses it at our request. Prayer is necessary with regard to God because prayer is also a form of worship. God expects us in prayer not simply and only to supplicate or to ask. Prayers and supplications, requests, asking, all these things belong to prayer. But it's also worship. Notice that it's the chief part of thankfulness. Prayer is the way in which we express our thanksgiving to God. Anyone who says they are thankful for what God gives them, that they are thankful for the food on their table, they are thankful for the salvation in their souls, but does not pray and tell God that is not thankful. The sad thing here is that not only when we do not pray or refuse to pray or forget about prayer, that we not only sin against God who requires it and who tells us how necessary it is, but it shows we're not really thankful. We're not thankful for what He has given, that in our heart is the attitude that we have gotten what we have. That we have the goods and the house that we live in because we have gotten it. Even that we have gained the salvation that we have. That somehow we have made ourselves worthy of our salvation. And the result always is lack of prayer life. One reason you may ask yourself why it is that God requires prayer to receive things is not that God is incapable of giving us things without prayer. He does that with the ungodly every day. God even showers the ungodly with gifts, riches beyond what we have. And He does that without any of them uttering a prayer. God is certainly capable of that, but He curses them in that. 
Those things go against them. They serve for their destruction. They serve to make them just, or God just in the judgment He gives upon that unbelief. But God requires prayer of us Christians because to ask Him and to ask in our need glorifies Him. It's a part of His salvation. It's a part of His deliverance to have His children recognize that we have nothing apart from Him and nothing that we receive from Him is of any good or benefit, any grace or any blessing from that except in the way of prayer, recognizing that very thing. And God is glorified in that. There's many other things that we could point to, but consider also with regard to us. Not going to belabor the point anymore about how prayer is the means God gives to receive, except to say this, that oftentimes the reason we lack is we've ignored that little fact. In fact, often we've rebelled against it. Rather than receive the Word of God to come boldly to the throne of grace in time of need, in time of need, we ignore the throne of grace. And often sad to say we ignore it because, well, we're not sorry for our sins. There's something in us that unnerves us going to God to ask for something when we know full well we're hiding our sins. That's why a wicked walk of life and an absent prayer life always go together. But on the other side is this. There is something amazing, encouraging, wonderful. It's why it's full of references in the Psalms to this reality that when God answers our prayer and we recognize it, it simply stimulates and moves us to more and more love and gratitude to God. When, for example, you young men get on your knees at night and pray to God that He gives you and brings you a godly, God-fearing, and God-loving woman for a wife, and then you find that wife, you recognize He brought her, He prepared her, and she becomes not only a great, great treasure, for which you are thankful to God for and will express that the days of your life, but it also gives you hope and confidence that God will always hear your prayers. That too is something the Scriptures teach us, that God uses prayer and His response to prayer even to give us confidence and hope. Many, many times David not only prays, God, hear my prayer, and receive my prayer for thy mercy's sake, but says God is the one who answers our prayer, who hears the cry of the needy, who hears the cry of those who are in despair. That's who he is. Now, with regard to the requirements of prayer, the Catechism sets forth really three requirements. And now you have to understand what these requirements are. What it's talking about simply is the elements of prayer. What does prayer consist of? What does it look like? What sets prayer apart from all other utterances from our mouth? 
perhaps even what sets real prayer apart from all other utterances that are made to a some sort of deity or supreme being, or even you done in the name of God and for Jesus' sake. What does prayer look like? What does it consist of? And you'll notice there are three things. It can be summarized simply as truth, humility, and confidence. Truth, humility, and confidence. I might say that you could boil those all down to one and simply say that it's faith. One cannot pray unless one is a Christian. One cannot pray unless he has faith. Because we can only speak the truth by faith. We can only be humble before God by faith. And we will only have confidence if we have faith because faith is confidence. Confidence is faith. So understand that. When it sets forth these requirements, the catechism good should simply say, well, you need faith. You have to have faith. It's worth remembering. As we go through the catechism, the catechism is going to remind us again and again, even with the very address to God, that all prayer is always done in faith. And that faith has these three elements. One, honesty, truth. That's brought out when the Catechism says the first requirement is that we pray from the heart to the one true God only who has manifested Himself in His Word. Notice prayer is a matter of the heart, not of the mouth. We may pray with our mouth, but prayers can be uttered in the heart. Prayers can be uttered with a vacuum cleaner in your hand or a baby in your arms because they're a matter of the heart. And it's, what the, it's what's in the heart that the Lord hears. It's what's in the heart that the Lord notices. That's important because if there are even the right things that come out of our mouth, but our heart isn't saying them, then we haven't really said them. We're simply mouthing them. There's nothing beneficial as such. There's nothing that God will hear as such in simply mouthing or speaking the words of the Lord's Prayer. The question is, are they in our heart? Do we say, our Father, believing that God is indeed our Father, is the one that we address, the one true God, not the God that we made Him to be, not the God that we imagine Him to be, not the God that we often think we can manipulate, that we can hide things from, Truth and honesty in prayer means that we realize our heart is wide open before God. It is an open book. It is dishonest. It is distruthful to go to God and say, God, Thou art the supreme and sovereign one, while in your heart you harbor the notion that you are really the one who's driving the bus. That you are the one who really determines where your life goes and what it consists of. It's dishonest and deceitful when one prays to God as the one who knows all things and knows the heart while you're busy trying to hide everything that's in your heart before God. Again, read the Scriptures and notice the prayers of the saints as they're made to God. And the God they pray to is the God of Scripture. It's why it's often so healthy and helpful in your prayer to talk about God, to worship Him. There's something wrong and distasteful when our prayers are 
mainly about us. We use the word God, and we say we pray to God, and we talk about the fact that we're praying to God, but it's all about us. Give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. What about God? That's why the Catechism also adds all things necessary for the soul and the body. Because how we think about God and whether we're being honest with God will show itself in our requests. It's, notice, not requests that I want. It's not for the things that even I think I need. I think I need this and that. God says no, only the things He has commanded in His Word. Has God commanded you to pray for a nice house? No, He hasn't. You pray for a nice house, you are praying rebelliously. Does God tell you to pray for lots of bread or just your daily bread? Does God promise in His Word that He's going to cure you of this sickness or disease? No, He doesn't. So when you make that request, it must be on your lips, and if not on your lips, then in your heart. These things according to the will of God. Lord, I submit to Thy will. That's honesty in prayer. The second thing that is a requirement is humility. Humility shows itself in our posture. Humility shows itself in our speech. But above all, humility is a matter of the heart. Notice how it follows from the truth. One will only be humble before God if he knows the truth about God and himself. And if one knows the truth about God and himself, there will be humility. That God is way up here, transcendent above me in glory and righteousness. And when I'm down here, I'm a sinner. Even if I was a perfect man, I would still be a creature dependent upon Him. Humility, especially with regard to our life, our moral life. It is inconceivable that a child of God can come to God in prayer and not acknowledge his sin, for example. That is as strange and ought to be as strange to us as if we would go to God in prayer and never ask for bread or drink. But notice how often we ask for the former and not the latter. Humility is that we are needy. We are continually needy. And then humility is that whatever I ask from God, I don't deserve. I don't deserve bread. I don't deserve to have life. I don't deserve to be alive. God doesn't owe me life. God doesn't owe me one more minute on this earth. I have forfeited all that naturally in Adam. God doesn't owe me the forgiveness of sins. God doesn't even owe to answer my prayers. Notice the psalmist, even when he prays that God answer his prayer, always pleads that on the basis of who God is, humility characterizes all true prayer. Honesty, truth, and humility. And then what follows from that is confidence. Confidence. It's not like confidence is built upon and based upon the other two, but it does flow from that. Understand that. That confidence isn't dependent upon the other two, is brought out by the fact that you have to have faith, which is confidence, in order to pray the truth, in order to play in humility. But our fathers add confidence and assurance after this because if one has indeed prayed in truth and humbly, one's confidence will be in God. 
That's the point. If we pray on the basis of the fact that even that we prayed, God answer my prayer because I prayed like you told me to, you won't be confident. You won't be confident because your conscience will tell you that prayer was very sinful and selfish. Our confidence isn't in the number of times we prayed. Our confidence isn't in how loudly we prayed, that we used the right form of prayer and the right posture. Our confidence is in that God will certainly hear us for Christ's sake. And here is where this subject intersects with the fact that Christ is our mediator. I don't have time this morning to get into it, but if you have time maybe for your devotions this afternoon or today, read the Belgian Confession, Article 26, on Christ's intercession. Anyone that thinks that Christ's work is completed in the sense that Christ does not work anymore hasn't read this article and doesn't understand that Christ is continually working on behalf of our prayers. What is Christ doing now? And the answer is interceding on behalf of every one of our prayers. That article is the one that sets forth this reality that God will certainly hear our prayers because we make them in Christ's name. And who will God hear more than Christ, His only beloved Son? And our confidence is in the power of Christ. Who has more power than God's only begotten Son? That is the ability to answer our request. You see where your confidence is now? Your confidence isn't even in the fact that you prayed according to the truth or you prayed in humility. It's nothing in you. It's nothing in prayer itself. It's in Christ, who is our mediator, who interceded for us, not only there at the cross, standing between us and the wrath of God, but continues to do so. And that's necessary because we continue to sin and invoke the wrath of God. Notice Daniel prayed that. Confidence in prayer. Confidence I'm talking about here is in the answer. The first thing that we have to understand, beloved, about confidence is that we have to have confidence that God hears every single prayer we make. He hears them whether they're good or bad. Certainly, if we don't pray honestly, certainly if we don't pray humbly, and certainly if we pray without confidence in God through Jesus Christ, that prayer is not even heard. It's not a prayer. It's not made to Him. It's not addressed to God. And we ought to realize that. We ought to know that. But now... True prayer made by faith, we need to have confidence in something, which is that God will always hear that prayer. And He answers. Always notice that. He answers. God answers every single prayer. Sometimes we say He don't answer because we're looking for the wrong answer. We're praying, God, please heal me, and God doesn't heal us. So we say, God hasn't heard my prayer. God isn't answering me. Well, God did answer you. His answer is right in front of you. He didn't heal you of your disease. There's His answer. And be careful. Be careful then with how you respond to that. Be careful that you're not rebellious in that. Be careful you don't pretend or deal with God as someone who's deaf in one ear and can't hear in the other. No. 
We have to have confidence that God always hears our prayers and He always answers. We may have to look for His answer by faith. Certainly, He will provide everything necessary for body and soul, everything that we need in this life. Now remember, God doesn't promise us that we'll live tomorrow. But as long as you're living, God will provide for that life, that earthly life. And that's simply a picture of God's care for our spiritual life. That's why the mention of the grace and Holy Spirit, not only here, but in the previous Lord's Day, don't overlook that, that when it comes to prayer, the thing that receives the highlight and the emphasis is that prayer is the means by which we receive the grace and the Holy Spirit of God. Not initially, of course, but exactly because you're alive, exactly because you have the grace and Holy Spirit, this is the means God uses to continue to give it to us. And it's as clear as clear can be here in this article. Now, why is that brought up? Because it helps us focus on what we ought to be praying for and what our confidence in prayer ought to be. You see, what our real need is, beloved, is not food and drink and health and all these things that are always on our mind. But what we need continually and more than those things by far is the grace of God and the Holy Spirit of God. The grace of God to live our life according to His Word. The Holy Spirit of God to even pray. And understand something. That that prayer, God not only hears and God not only answers, but He always answers that prayer by giving His grace and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, O Lord, we thank Thee for the gift of prayer. We thank Thee for the Holy Spirit and the life by which we may pray. And we pray, O God, give unto us everything necessary for our body and for our soul, and give unto us especially more and more of Thy grace and Holy Spirit, that we might live in thankfulness unto Thee, the living God. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.